we begin a new section. And this new section is worldwide judgment. God is actually in chapters 13 through 27 going to go through the different nations around him and judge them and condemn them. We've already seen this with the beginning of Amos. Amos opened up with him judging eight nations, Tyre, Damascus, the Philistines, Edom, Moab, that kind of stuff. He's doing the same thing here, except this judgment is going to last longer. For them, he just kind of gave them a few sentences. Now he's going to like give chapters to these nations as he judges them. So the first nation that he judges is Babylon, because Babylon is going to become the new nation on the scene. And they're going to be the new empire, and they're going to take Judah into exile. And so he's going to deal with them. He is looking to the future now, and he's talking to the exiles, and he's anticipating them looking back at Babylon, and they're being freed from Babylon, and they're turning back as they're leaving, and they're trash-talking Babylon. He actually says, take up this taunt against Babylon. The modern-day term for that would be trash-talking. And you're like, yes, trash-talking is biblical. But only when God gives you the words. <laughs> so don't be like, I can do that on the playground uh, or on the basketball court. This is the message about Babylon, verse, chapter 13, verse 1. And God revealed to Isaiah, son of Amaz, on a bare hill, on a bare hill, raise a signal flag, shout to them, wave your hand, so they might enter the gates of the princes. I have given orders to my chosen soldiers. I have summoned the warriors through whom I will vent my anger, my boasting, arrogant ones. There is a loud noise on the mountains. It is a sound like a large army. There is a great commotion among the kingdoms. Nations are being assembled. And Yahweh, who commands the armies, is mustering forces for battle. They will come from a distant land, from the horizon. It is Yahweh with his instruments of judgment coming to destroy the whole earth. Wail for Yahweh's day of judgment is near. It comes with all the destructive power of the sovereign judge. For this reason, all hands hang limp. Every human heart loses courage. Basically, when they see this giant army, they are panicked and they cannot face it. They are frozen with fear. They panic and cramps and pain seize a hold of them, like those of a woman who is straining to give birth. They look at one another in astonishment. Their faces are flushed red. Look, Yahweh's day of judgment is coming. It is a day of cruelty and savage, raging anger, destroying the earth and annihilating its sinners. Indeed, the stars in the sky and their constellations no longer give out their light. The sun is darkened as soon as it rises and the moon does not shine. Now, he's not talking about a literal cosmic event here. It's metaphorical of it will, it will be the one of the darkest days in your life. We've, we've used that phrase when something really bad has happened. We've seen this in movies or maybe a loved one has said this. And they're just like, it was the darkest day of my life. It was like there was no light anymore. I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their sin. I will put an end to the pride of the insolent. I will bring down the arrogance of tyrants. I will make human beings more scarce than pure gold and the people more scarce than gold from Ophir. So I will shake the sky and the earth and will shake loose from its foundations because of the fury of Yahweh who commands armies. 
and the day he vents his raging anger like a frightened gazelle or a sheep with no shepherd. Each will turn toward home. Each will run to his homeland. Everyone who is caught will be stabbed. Everyone who is seized will die by the sword. Their children will be smashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives raped. Look, I am stirring up the Medes to attack them. The Medes were north of the Zagros Mountains, and they made an alliance with Babylon to attack the rest of the world. They are not concerned about silver, nor are they interested in gold. Their arrows will cut through young men and their ribbons, and they have no compassion on a person offspring, and they will not look with pity on children. Babylon, the most admire the kingdoms. The Chaldeans, it's another name, it's mostly the ruling class of Babylon. The source of honor and pride will be destroyed by God, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were. Now he quickly turns them and says, and they will be destroyed too. Now remember, this language is graphic. It's horrific. And you're like, God, how could you allow this to happen? But remember, there are no innocent people here. This is exactly what they've been doing to everybody else around them. This is poetic justice. And when you are a righteous God in heaven, watching hundreds and hundreds of years of your chosen people doing this and massacring people left and right around the nations, then you understand the anger and the justice that has to be poured on them for what they've done. No one, verse 20, will live there again. No one will ever reside there again. No Bedouin will camp there. No shepherds will rest their flocks there. Wild animals will rest there. The ruined houses will be full of hyenas. Ostriches will live there. Wild goats will skip among the ruins. Wild dogs will yip at the ruined fortresses. Jackals will yelp at the once splendid places. Her time is almost up. Her days will be prolonged. Will not be prolonged. The people he's talking about who destroyed Babylon are who? The Medes. But who? what gave the Medes their power? Persians. So it was the Medo-Persian Empire. So I was right the first time. I just got lost in my thoughts. So it's the Medo-Persian Empire comes down. Now, Mede had originally allied themselves with Babylon. And they had come across the mountains to destroy Assyria with Babylon. But the Medes turned on Babylon. Because that's what all nations do. They always turn on their allies. But the other reason that the Medes turned on Babylon is Cyrus II, who came along, was part Mede and part Persian. His mom was one and his dad was the other. And so you kind of go with blood on that one. So now he addresses how this will bring relief to Israel. Babylon being destroyed. Chapter 14, verse 1. Yahweh will certainly have compassion on Jacob. He will again choose Israel, his special people, and restore them to their land. Resident foreigners will join them and unite with the family of Jacob. Notice, once again, Israel's return, but all the nations. Nations will take them and bring them back to their own place. Then the family of Jacob will make foreigners their servants as they settle in Yahweh's land. And they will make their captors captives and rule over the ones who press them. It's interesting when he refers to the word foreigners, we'll see this later. But if he's referring to the nations coming with Israel, it's the people who repent and join Yahweh by faith coming with them. But when he's talking about foreigners, in a poetic sense, he's not talking about foreigners as the other nations. He's talking about foreigners who refuse to repent. And so, what he's, and this can be confusing for us, but the nations will repent and join Israel. 
but the foreigners, the nations who refuse to repent, will be punished and will be brought down for their lack of joining God in faith. They will make their... When Yahweh gives you relief from your suffering and anxiety and from your hard labor, which you were made to perform, you will taunt the king of Babylon with these words. This is where now Israel has permission to taunt the king of Babylon. Listen very carefully. This is often misunderstood. We have been taught and raised, maybe not all of us, but many of us, that this passage is about Satan. And this is the fall of Satan from heaven. But I think if you see the context, once again, context, it's like all those things, oh, wait a minute, we just read context from the very beginning. You will see this has nothing to do with Satan. This has nothing to do with Satan. The first clue is this. This is what you shall say to the king of Babylon. That's not Satan. It's the king of Babylon. Look how the oppressor has met his end. Hostility has ceased. And Yahweh has broken the club of the wicked and the scepter of rulers. It furiously struck down the nations with unceasing blows. It angrily ruled over the nations, oppressing them without restraint. The whole earth rests and is quiet. They will break into song. The evergreens also rejoice over your demise. And so do the cedars of Lebanon singing, Since you fell asleep, no woodsman comes up to chop us down. So the first thing you're to say is, Oh, look how you great king and oppressor are now fallen. You're not so mighty and powerful oppressing us with your yoke anymore. You have been ruined. You were awesome and great in your power. No one can stop you, but eventually all kings fall. And everybody's so excited, so excited that even the trees of creation are praising God, for your demise, because they will no longer be cut down anymore, and they will no longer be ravished. It's one thing to cut down a tree and build a house for your family. It's another thing to cut down a tree so you can batter in a city and destroy it and oppress it and take it down like you did. It goes on. Sheol. Now, some of your translations might have the word grave, which is totally accurate, because the word sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. Now, some translators take sheol as just the word for the grave. And so they translate the grave. Some people think that Sheol might actually be a specific name of the grave. And so they keep it Sheol rather than translating it. That's a debate that's boring. Sheol below is stirred up above you, ready to meet you when you arrive. It rouses the spirits of the dead for you, all the former leaders of the earth. It makes all the former kings of the nations rise from their thrones. And all of them respond to you saying, You too have become weak like us. You have become just like us. Your splendor has been brought down to Sheol as well as to the sound of the string instruments. You lie on a bed of maggots with a blanket of worms over you. That king is dead. And this is why this is not Satan. One of the other reasons it's not Satan is Satan has never gone to the grave. Satan is not dead. Satan is not being eaten by maggots and worms. And no human king in the grave is saying, you've become just like us. And even if you want to see this like way future, the lake of fire kind of thing, no, 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 it still doesn't work. Because Satan doesn't have a human body to be eaten by worms. Satan doesn't go to the grave. Satan is not going to die. He will be judged 
and thrown into captivity, but there's no reference ever anywhere in the Bible of Satan being killed, of Satan going to the grave, or Satan being eaten by maggots because he has a body to be consumed. Nowhere do you see that ever in the Bible. This is a king. And all the other kings thought they were all that. And they built empires and they fell. And now the kings are like, yep, you're just like us now. You thought you are great and awesome and you came to an end and we thought we were too and we thought we never would fall. And we did and here you are. And so there's a taunting that's happening from then. Everyone's going to taunt. Life and death will taunt them. You've been brought low into the grave. And all the, by the way, Satan is not the king or the master of hell in the afterworld either. Nowhere does the Bible ever say that. That's Dante's Inferno. That's Far Side Comics. That's whatever you want to... I don't know where that comes from exactly, but the Bible never says that the grave or hell is where Satan rules. The Bible, Jesus, makes it very clear that Satan rules the earth. And he roams the earth here. And he is the prince of the air. And that the final destination place for him is the lake of fire. Not where he rules, but where he is tormented as well. Look now, you have fallen. Verse 12. Now, this is where everybody's like, okay, okay, I'm with you. We're we're talking about the human king. But verse 12, that's when it shifts to the demonic satanic power that's behind the king as a puppet master. And now we've gone all spiritual now, and we're talking about Satan as a demonic being, right? Verse 12, Look how you have fallen from the sky, O shining one, the sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the ground, O conqueror of the nations. You said to yourself, I will climb up to the sky above the stars of El, and I will set my throne, and I will rule on the mountain of the assembly on the remote slopes of Zaphon. I will climb up to the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. But you have been brought down to Sheol, through the remotest slopes of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, and they look at you carefully, thinking, Is this the man who shook the earth, the one who made kingdoms tremble? This is the one who made the world like a desert, who ruined its cities and refused to free his prisoners so they could return home. They say, look, O shining one, son of the dawn, you've been cut down. Why do we think that's Satan? Because in the Latin Vulgate, one of the first translations from Hebrew to another language, the first was actually the Greek Septuagint, and then other ones, but the Vulgate was the most popular and most prominent, they saw this word, the shining one, or the morning star. And in Hebrew, it's a bright light. Well, the only good Latin word for that is Lucifer. And Lucifer just basically means light bearer. Anyone who carries light. And if you were here for Freemasonry, we already talked about this. If the guy in the Olympics is carrying a torch and he's carrying light and he's running down, you would say, here comes Lucifer. Okay, that's all the word Lucifer meant. It was not a personal name. It did not have any kind of connotation to it. It was just the Latin word light bearer. So the Vulgate comes along and says, well, this is a light bearer. We don't have any other good words. And you know how difficult it is to go from one language to another and find exact words. So they translate it Lucifer. Well, a story came along of Prometheus, a god of the Greeks, who brought fire to the humans, and Zeus didn't want him to do that, so he punished Prometheus and threw him off 
Mount Olympus. And then this idea of Satan had to be an angel at one time, and he fell. And that comes from Revelation, and where the dragon stuff. And all of a sudden, these stories begin to merge together. And we come here, and we're like, oh, Lucifer. This must be the fall of Satan. Then, So we see this, and we're like, oh, this must be the fall of Satan. And then we say, oh, Lucifer must have been his name. All this is assumptions. All this is assumptions. So first, I'm going to deal with the obvious of why this is not Satan. First, it says, you have been brought down to the grave. Again, it says it. If you want to claim that this is a switch to the spiritual being behind the king, then why does it still talk about this being going to the grave? Why does it still talk about this being going to the grave? And the other one is, he says, is this the man? If this is a spiritual being behind the king, then why is Satan referred to as a man? Satan is never referred to as a man in the Bible. So right now, you have nothing, you have absolutely nothing here that could say that this is actually Satan. And if you want to hold on to one little thread of desperateness, and I don't mean that in a bad way or an insulting way, you're like, oh, but he tried to climb the mountain of God. And he tried to become high, sit on the mountain of God. Yeah, but didn't almost every king in the ancient world try to do that? Isn't that what the Tower of Babylon is about? Didn't Nebuchadnezzar proclaim himself God and make everybody bow down to him? Did not all the pharaohs claim that they were God? This is a very common theme among people in the ancient world. All the Persians believe that they were, all the Persian kings believe they were gods. All the pharaohs believe they were gods. Babylonians were unique. They did not think that they were gods. They thought they were um, um, guided by gods. But Nebuchadnezzar was unique to the Babylonians by actually thinking he was a god and demanding people to bow down and worship him. So this is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. He's just talking about the way that every king in the ancient world thinks practically. Why does he use this phrase, morning star, and the dawn, and all this kind of stuff? Because this is an actual mythological story from the Canaanites and the Babylonians. These, if you look in the Hebrew, you will realize that this actually isn't the words just morning star and the dawn and God. These are actually the personal names of pagan gods. The personal names of pagan gods. And there was a story of a West Semitic god whose name was Hele, which means the shining one, H-E-L-E-L. He was the shining god. And basically, there was another god by the name of Shakar, who was the dawn. And Shakar sat on the throne, and Helia tried to take his dominion from him. He tried to take his dominion from him. And he tried to, over, he tried to sack the current god and throw him off the throne and take his position. But instead, he was thrown down. What language do you use to try to talk to a Babylonian pagan king about his fall. You use his stories. Like, if, if, you, if you're going to another country, and you're trying to connect to them, and you're like, well, God is kind of like this, or Jesus is kind of like this, and they're like, well, you don't get what you're talking about. The best place to start is find their stories. 
the stories of their culture. And you use those to connect to people. Even we do this. Okay, J.R.R. Tolkien used fantasy to display Jesus Christ or the prophet Frodo. And I think it's Aragon. I always forget his name. The king and Gandalf the prophet. These are all three images that are the king, prophet, and priest of Jesus Christ. We in C.S. Lewis use lions and that kind of stuff to try to connect people. And we use stories. Some pastors even get up and they're like, Christianity is like football. Jesus is the coach and you're the players. And every touchdown is winning a soul for Christ. Okay, I've actually heard messages like that. We use stories from the culture to connect to people and help them understand these difficult ideas. And you're taunting a Babylonian king who has not grown up on the Jewish literature and the Jewish stories. And so how do you talk about a fall of a Babylonian king when he thinks that will never happen to me? You tell the story of a very famous god who tried to dethrone another god and he was thrown down and that will really hit him because you're like, even a god can be thrown down. Then how much more a king? And that's what Isaiah is doing. He's not giving some insight to Satan where nobody has any concept of Satan. And God's like, trust me, 2,000 years later, you'll get this. He's speaking to them, the original audience. And he's connecting to the Babylonian king with a very powerful story that he'll get. But he makes it clear that this is still about him by using the words man, grave, maggots, worms, that kind of stuff. And he's making this point, connecting them. And this is why in some translations it's El instead of God, because El was the high God. And the other thing that tells you that this is rooted in a Babylonian story is notice what mountain slope this king tried to become God on. Zaphon. Zaphon is the actual mountain that El and Baal ruled from. That El and Baal ruled from. So this story of a West Semitic God who tried to dethrone El or Baal and become God himself, which happens all the time. Everybody tried to dethrone them all the time. And he got cast down. And God is saying, if that can happen to gods and you think you're a god, then it will most certainly happen to you. But unlike them, where they continue to reign in the afterworld or they continue to reign somewhere else, as a god, you're going to be eaten by maggots. And you're going to die. Because when gods are thrown down off of mountains, they still live. But when humans are thrown down, they die. And this is the point that he's making. He's telling them that this is what's going to happen to you. You think you're a god and you're untouchable. But even gods come down. And you are a human. And you're going to be eaten. And all the kings that came before you that you thought you were different, they're going to be mocking you when you go into the grave to meet them. This would be the equivalent of saying, you think you're a hot CEO and that you're completely untouchable over your company and nobody will ever be able to take you down. But look at all these CEOs of Enron who fell and stock market crashes eventually and they take you all out and there's corporate buyouts and all that kind of stuff and eventually you will go down and you will die. Now that's not exactly like, but that's the equivalent. It's a metaphor that you're using to try to speak to the prideful. This is not Satan. Very few people even see this. There's no discussion of Satan in the First Testament. There's no discussion of the fall of Satan anywhere in the Bible. The best that you can do is say, 
It is so obvious that everything that God created was good. God has made that very clear in the very beginning. And everything is his creation. So if Satan is evil now, he must have had a fall somewhere. Because God said everything is good. That's the best you can do. That's the best you can do. There's no passage in the entire Bible that talks about the fall of Satan. This does not refer to Lucifer. And in most, and the King James kept that. King James is old school. And so when they translated, they translated every word except for Lucifer. Now you're really hard-pressed to find any Bible that has Lucifer in it. Because it's common knowledge that this, this was a misunderstanding. Even, and this is, not news, this is not new scholarship. Even Calvin and Martin Luther, which Luther, said... This is not Satan. And that was back in the Reformation. Calvin, now, if you've ever read Luther and Calvin, they were not kind with people who disagreed with them. Read Luther's autobiography, Here I Stand. He damns everyone who disagrees with him. And he's like, I damn them too. And they'd think this and this. I damn them to hell too. And it's like, whoa. But, you know, if everybody in Christianity was trying to kill you, you might have a little uh, anger issues too. So, um, but Calvin said, and I, I'm just trying to tell you like how adamant they are. Calvin says, only idiots think this is Satan. So they were not kind with their words. So I'm not saying that to insult you if you think that. I'm just trying to let you know. This is not a new scholarly development that we, oh, it's not Satan, and it's like all new things are suspect. This view has been around for a long time that it's not Satan, and they took it pretty hardcore, like there's no way it could be any other way than not being Satan. So I'm just kind of like laying that out. I don't think that's the love of Jesus when they talk like that, but it just shows you that this is, this is not new scholarship. This is not new scholarship in this belief system. If anything, it being Lucifer is new scholarship. And I mean that relatively like in the existence of the Bible. So he judges them and he condemns them. And then he goes on. And remember, that speaks more powerfully to a people in exile. Okay? Like if you're in exile and God says, one day this demonic being that you have no idea who he is and he's going to fall one day and you're like, how does that help my life? But the Babylonian king, that man specifically who's oppressing you, he will fall and go to the grave. That's way more powerful. That's way more, inst- that's, that's hope. That's real life freedom. And then he goes on and describes it, even making it much more clear that this is a human Verse 16, those who see you stare at you. They look at you carefully thinking, is this the man who shook the earth, the one who made the kingdoms tremble? Is this the one who made the world like a desert, ruined its cities and refused to free his prisoners? All the kings of the nations and all of them lie down in splendor, each one his own tomb. But you have been thrown out of your grave like a shoot that is thrown away. You lie among the slain, among those who have been slashed by the sword. Among those headed for the stones of the pit, as if you were a mangled corpse. So he makes it clear, but unlike the other kings, you're not even going to get a proper burial. You're not even going to get a proper burial. You will not be buried with them. 
Because you destroyed your land and killed your people, the offspring of the wicked will never be mentioned again. Prepare to execute his sons, for the sins of his ancestors have committed. There's another reason this is not Satan. Satan has never had sons. Satan has never had sons. And you can't say it's transitioning back to the king here, because there's nothing here that makes it even sound like it's transitioning back. They must not rise up and take possession of the earth or fill the surface of the world with the cities. I will rise up again. I will raise up against them, says Yahweh, who commands armies. I will blot out the remembrance of Babylon and destroy all her people, including the offspring that she produces, says Yahweh. I will turn her into a place that is overrun with wild animals and covered with pools of stagnant water. I will get rid of her, just as one sweeps away the dirt with a broom, says Yahweh who commands armies. And Yahweh who commands armies makes a solemn vow. Be sure of this. Just as I have intended, so it will be. Just as I have planned, it will happen. I will break Assyria in the land. I will trample them underfoot on my hills. Their yoke will be removed from my people. The burden will be lifted from their shoulders. This is the plan I have devised for the whole earth. My hand is ready to strike all the nations. Indeed, Yahweh who commands armies has a plan. And who can possibly frustrate it? His hand is ready to strike. And who can possibly stop it? So God says, I don't care how powerful you are, Babylon. I have planned your demise. And it will happen. And if you think that God doesn't follow through with his plans, then just go read the pre-Assyrian prophets and look at Assyria destroying all the nations. God predicted all that, detailed it all out, and the plan happened. And so as he details Babylon's fall in the same language, it will happen. And the beauty, he says, this is the powerful statement of God. I have a plan. And you cannot frustrate it. I have a plan, and you cannot stop it. The implication is nothing stops the Word of God. Nothing stops the Word of God. Now, in hindsight, we see this. Because not only did he bring down Assyria, we saw him bring down Babylon. And then Daniel predicted the fall of Persia as punishment for their sins, and we saw that. And then Daniel predicted the fall of Greece, and we saw that. And then Daniel predicted the fall of Rome, and we saw that. And that's where Daniel stopped talking. But the implication is like, oh my gosh, that's a really good batting average, God. And the implication is, therefore, every other plan that he's talked about, you know is going to come true. We're not going to read all the other nations, because it's a lot of the same language, and we've already seen that in Amos. But basically, he then goes to the Philistines, and he begins to condemn them. And he condemns them for the same reason that he condemned them in the book of Amos. The, the, the reason that God condemns them is pretty much exactly the same reason. And basically with the Philistines, he says, because you basically attacked Israel when they were vulnerable, and you oppressed them, and you sold them into slavery, and so I'm going to bring you down under the Babylonians. And then he condemns Moab. You are related to Israel, you attacked them when they were vulnerable, and I'm going to bring the Arab invaders of the desert in and they're going to kind of take you out and destroy you and then he goes to um eat damascus damascus is up north of aram the ram that kept attacking israel over and over and over again under ben hadad and haziel and rezin who we talked about in chapter 7 of isaiah and he condemns them and then we go to um god begins to judge the distant distant countries in the south kush which we know as modern day ethiopia now, back in the day, Kush, Ethiopia was a very big powerhouse. 
and they were a very dominant empire. And he condemns them. And then he judges Egypt. And he judges Egypt. He, he spends a lot longer in Egypt. Babylon and Egypt, he spends more time on them than anybody else. And he talks about Egypt because Egypt especially, Egypt made treaties with Israel and Judah to protect them. And then they betray their treaties. So he holds them to a higher standard because of the treaty covenant that they made with each other. Then he goes back to Babylon in chapter 21 and condemns them again, just in case they were, had fallen asleep the first time. And then he goes to Edom, which is called Seir. But Seir is the mountain that is dominant in Edom. And then he goes to Arabia, just a whole bunch of nomadic people who live in the Arabian desert and talks about how he's going to judge them and bring them down. And then he goes to Jerusalem and starts turning on them and condemning them as well. And then he goes to Tyre, which Tyre was up there in Sidon, just or the Phoenician territory just above Israel. 